for the community. Inspire Radio. The information on the Ask Dr. Sami show is correct to the best of our knowledge, but no warranty as to accuracy is given and each person should not act on the basis of its contents without taking appropriate independent advice. The information provided on this show is for information purposes only. You should seek assistance from a healthcare professional when interpreting these materials and applying them to your individual circumstances. If you have any concerns about your health, consult your general practitioner. This show does not imply endorsement of third-party services or products and cannot provide you with health and medical advice. For the community, Inspire Radio. And it's the Ask Dr. Sammy show and I'm Dr. Sammy and I've got my dad here back by popular demand. He's the funny one out of the two of us. So that's why we have him. <laughs> I've got Professor Sammy with me. Hi there, how are you? And uh, he likes being here uh, for the Ask Dr. Sammy show. He is actually the funnier one. Yes, I think so. And But, I do miss my daughter. Yeah, the real reason everyone is he just likes to spend some time with me. Quality time. So father daughter recording time at the Ask Dr. Sammy show. See, we're all about holistic health here. And uh, you guys have been writing in with some amazing questions from the community which we've been answering and we've got a great question. And he's from Mark from Auburn Grove. He has asked about treatments for asthma. Can it be cured and will it always have it? Okay. So, I mean, we talk about asthma and I think lots of people have heard the term. You probably have friends or family or know about asthma, but most people don't actually know what it is. And I don't think you do either, yes. Dad. So, asthma is when there's a problem with the breathing tubes that carry air into our lungs. So, people who have asthma will often have airways that get a little bit thinner at certain times and therefore they can find it hard to breathe. Oh, will it ever go away? So there is no cure for asthma. True asthma will never go away, but it can usually be well controlled and there can be periods of time where your symptoms don't affect you at all. You you know that could last even up to years until it's triggered by a new environment, a stress, work, things like that. So true asthma never goes away. I do hear about people saying, "Oh, well, I had asthma as a child and I I grew out of it." And that strictly speaking isn't really possible. It's either that uh wheezing can be quite common in babies and toddlers and we might think that they're going to have asthma. So they might we might give them an inhaler for it and actually as they grow up and grow older, we realize it wasn't asthma, so it might seem like they've cured it. Or uh, people might go years and years and years, as I said, without actually having any symptoms. They haven't cured their asthma, but in the right trigger, they may actually end up getting symptoms. So that's why I say, even if you think that you don't have asthma anymore, it's really important that you still carry a reliever inhaler. And we'll talk about that a bit later as well. So how do we manage asthma? I mean, do you need people to carry their inhalers all the time? So you're right. We often use inhalers to treat asthma, and I think everybody knows about the blue Ventolin inhaler. It's one that you commonly see around, and that's a reliever. So it works quickly and should always be carried around because if you suddenly get into an environment where you've got an allergy that's making the lungs get irritated and those tubes we talked about get thinner, that's when you need the medication to quickly work and help you breathe. So medicines used at treating asthma and aims to keep symptoms at control and under control um 
But for good asthma control, you need lots of things and medication is just one part of it. So I'm a big believer in holistic medicine and prevention is better than cure. That's something my dad always taught me. So that's why we actually recommend regular checks with your GP or doctor. And the reason is lots of people have inhalers, but they're not using them properly. So when they think they're taking two puffs of their inhaler, they're maybe only getting the equivalent of one puff or even some studies have shown half a puff, but they're taking two. So it looks like they're needing stronger medication to control their asthma or they're needing more puffs. So by going to regular checks with your doctor, we can check your inhaler technique, make sure you're on the right doses. And actually in asthma, we commonly step things up and step things down. So if your asthma is really well controlled and you say, hey, Dr. Sammy, I'm barely using my inhalers, I might drop things down. And equally, if they start to creep up again, we might pop pop you back on the right treatment. And the reason we do that is we want to keep your lungs as healthy as possible and minimize any bad asthma attacks where you suddenly have to go into the emergency room with your asthma. So the main treatment is keep your lungs healthy. But because we're all about prevention, inhalers are one part. But the other thing is know your triggers, avoid them. So for some people, it's household dust, it's certain weather, it's alcohol, it might be stress, it might be occupational exposures. They're really, really common. So I have some younger people who work with dyes and paints, hairdressing dyes. And if that's what's irritating your asthma, you should try and minimize it so you keep your lungs healthy. And the other thing is, of course, have flu vaccines because when you have asthma, your lungs, we don't want them to do more work than they have to. We want to keep those airways really healthy. So we want to prevent you getting sick. So flu vaccines, reducing occupational exposures, avoiding your triggers, knowing them. But the big one, the big one. Oh, stop smoking. Stop smoking. See, big brownie points for my dad. Stop smoking and even passive smoking. So if you've got a child with asthma or you're a child with breathing difficulties, it's really, really, really important that there's no one smoking around them because they breathe in that smoke and it starts to irritate their lungs and their lungs have got those tubes that can get thinner and we don't want them to have to work any harder. Anyway, smoking is bad. Smoking smoking is bad for you. You hear, heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> so asthma can be well controlled and you can live a normal life. Exactly. Asthma is not a big deal. It is a medical condition that with the right treatment and the right checks with your general physician, so your GP, you can live a very normal, happy life. Everyone needs to probably have access to their reliever. So that's that blue puffer and always keep that on hand. Um, and it's also possible to for asthma to be worse with certain activities or certain times of the year. So that's why you go and see your doctor. But the key is, remember, if you have asthma, before changing or stopping your asthma medication yourself or for your child, always make sure you keep talking to your GP because otherwise... And I'm going to do a dad joke here. You could be caught short of breath. <laughs> that's that's my uh, that's my uh, try at comedy, everybody, at the oh. Ask Dr. Sammy show. So thanks, Mark. That's a brilliant question about asthma, a really, really important topic because it's quite common. And so now hopefully you know a little bit more about it. For the community, Inspire Radio. And we're back with the Ask Dr. Sammy show. And now we have a very important question from Paul from Queen Anna, and he's asking about the dangers about general anaesthetic. He said that his wife had delirium after hers and believed the doctors were trying to kill her. 
I believe this contributed to her getting dementia. That's what Paul thinks. So what what's your opinion, Dr. Sammy? Well, this is a report um, that I've heard a little bit over the years from patients. And I have to say, I've had my own personal experience of my mum having a general anaesthetic and having delirium after a medical procedure. And so, Paul, I know how distressing it is to watch a loved one go through that. My dad and myself found it a very, very stressful experience. And it still stays with me today. I still have very vivid memories. As I yes, think my dad I does. do remember that as well. It's a very complex area, this, and I've looked into the most recent research that I could find from the Dementia Australia website and the Alzheimer's UK website. The recent research about general anaesthetic does show that after surgery, people can explain experience sorry, a change in cognition. So that means a change in how you think after surgery. There is a term called post-operative cognitive dysfunction. Big, big term. We'll just call it POCD is what they call it. Post-operative cognitive dysfunction. And it's specifically for changes that occur after a procedure where anesthetic has been used. So the current research shows that post-operatively, you can get changes to your thinking. But in the vast majority of cases, they last weeks and months after surgery. And only in a small percentage of cases do they last years. So people who have that will have a small change to their thinking. But in a lot of the research that I could find of studies about this, it's subtle changes, which will probably resolve very quickly, but also may not even be noticed. So we do know that after general anaesthetic, people can have post-operative cognitive dysfunction. So subtle changes to the way they think that in most cases is weeks and months, but can go on a little bit longer but could be so subtle that we don't even notice it's there. So how common is this? So when I was reading about it, 20% of those undergoing major surgery have been documented to have some form of this and 7% of those having minor surgery. And I actually broke this down a little bit to look at some of the research studies if you're interested. And actually, for some reason, it seems more prevalent, so higher, in patients who have had cardiac surgery. So that's heart surgery. There's obviously still lots more that we have to learn about why certain operations cause this. And we really don't know why the majority of people have a full recovery, but a small percentage do have long-term thinking problems. And it's hard to look into this when I, when I was kind of researching it, because actually often we have operations as we get older and that age group is a little bit higher risk at developing thinking problems as well. So it's hard to say how much of a role surgery actually has. So what is dementia? So dementia is a process. So what is dementia? So dementia is a progressive decline in brain function and memory impairment is a big part, but it also encompasses a change to thinking, our behaviour, our emotions, um, and lots of things like that. And Paul, in the question, asked specifically about dementia and general anaesthetic. So, so far, the studies that looked at dementia being caused by anaesthetic haven't shown an increased risk. It is possible that people are already in the early stages of dementia when they go for their uh, operation, because Lots of people who are having dementia, it can often exist for years before they're diagnosed. So it just might not have been noticed or obvious in the lead up to their operation. But so far, 
it's lots of unknowns. So basically, we don't know. We don't know. We definitely don't know, but I couldn't find any clear studies or research to show that general anesthetic can cause dementia. We know that it can cause this post-operative cognitive dysfunction, but that in itself is not dementia. Uh, so we definitely don't know everything about this topic. Um, we do know, th though, that people with dementia are at higher risk of developing delirium after a procedure. So that's a short-lived transient illness where people are acutely confused because of having the surgery, medication we might give them, dehydration or infection, pain, lots of those things. So what can you do to reduce the chances of memory issues after an operation? Um, should we not be having operations then? Well, that's that's clearly something that is going to be going through people's minds because I think everyone thinks you go in and you have an operation and no one is expecting to have a change in the way that you're thinking. I think we have to remember that all operations carry risks. So whether it's a small, relatively safe procedure or a bigger operation, there's always a chance of an adverse outcome. So what it comes down to is how necessary is an operation? So that's why we always say if you're thinking about having surgery, you need to have a good think about what happens if you don't have the operation, alternative treatment options, and that's when your family GP comes into play because you do need to go through all of those options. Sometimes you have to have an operation if it's a heart surgery that's needed and the alternative is that you're not going to survive or you're not going to breathe properly, you will need to do an operation. So we accept that risk. Modern medicine is brilliant and we've made lots of advances that mean that we can cure and manage many medical conditions so that it doesn't affect our lives. But we still have to remember that all operations carry risks. So as long as we're thinking about whether we need an operation and exploring alternatives, that's the main thing. But the other thing I will say is most people who have medical problems or any patients with dementia, they should normally before an operation have a thorough review with an anaesthetist. So that's the doctor that is in charge of giving you the things to put you to sleep essentially. And they're very important. That pre-assessment is extremely important at trying to decide if it's safe to proceed and what kind of adjustments we need to make as doctors and surgeons when we're doing your operation. So, Paul, you mentioned um, that you thought uh, your wife's dementia was caused by the delirium after anaesthetic. At present, from our current research, there is no link, but clearly this is a growing area. Um, the other thing is I know how tough it is to actually care for somebody with dementia. And, and Paul, I hope you're looking after yourself and remembering to access help because it's an extremely stressful time. There's lots of support out there, but I know from my own experiences with patients, it can be very, very hard to navigate the system and get access to help. So if you haven't done so already, I would recommend seeing your GP to get in touch with uh, a dementia educator. They're fabulous. They provide heaps of tips and tricks for things around the house to help people with li living with dementia. But most importantly, they help carers and spouses who are really going through this battle. And myself and my dad know of a, a very good dementia educator locally in Rockingham and Quinana. She's fabulous. Um, and she's a fountain of knowledge, isn't she, Dad? Yes, uh, she helps a lot of families to cope with this problem yeah. and issues that arise with 
with their family members. Yeah, and she's she's given um, our patient community some really useful tips and tricks to help manage their loved ones suffering with dementia. So uh, make sure you reach out to your local GP to hear about the fabulous uh, resources we've got. There's also the Dementia Australia website that has, has heaps of information online. Uh, but generally speaking, look, there's a lot of research we still need in this area and our knowledge in this is still growing. Thanks a lot for that question, Paul. Very interesting one. Thank you. For the community, Inspire Radio. The information on the Ask Dr. Sammy show is correct to the best of our knowledge, but no warranty as to accuracy is given and each person should not act on the basis of its contents without taking appropriate independent advice. The information provided on this show is for information purposes only. You should seek assistance from a healthcare professional when interpreting these materials and applying them to your individual circumstances. If you have any concerns about your health, consult your general practitioner. This show does not imply endorsement of third-party services or products and cannot provide you with health and medical advice. For the community, Inspire Radio. And we're back with the Ask Dr. Sammy show and we've got another great question here. And it's from Jenny from Subiaco who's listening into the Rockingham Inspire Radio. So we're, shout out north of the river. Anyone oh, yes. north of the river? And uh, Jenny has asked whether it's, is it true that you can use your 10 free Medicare sessions for physio and other services or is it only for counselling? If so, what services can you use this for? Okay, great question, uh, Jenny. And actually, there's a, it's a bit of a mind uh, map, really, and field uh, in terms of all these Medicare sessions. You've got two types of plans that people sometimes refer to, and you might hear your friends talking about this. The first is something called a chronic disease care plan. So that's pe- a plan offered to people like my dad, for example, who has high blood pressure or somebody that has diabetes or arthritis or heart disease. And basically what Medicare uh, and the government do is they subsidise some of the sessions for people with a chronic condition like high blood pressure to see different specialists. So we know that if you've got high blood pressure or diabetes, you're going to need to access podiatrists and physios and dietitians and speech pathologists. So Medicare actually gives you up to five sessions in a calendar year to actually access them. Now, doesn't mean it's fully covered by Medicare. It's just subsidized. So that's a key thing to tell people. Essentially, with these five sessions, they're partially rebated by Medicare. So it's best to check with the provider because some of them may charge a small gap that you'll have to pay out of pocket. There's also a separate kind of plan, Jenny, called a mental health care plan, which allows access for people to have psychology and counselling services. And mental health is a very, very important area. Lots of us are suffering from the black dog that's interfering with our mind and our lives. And talking therapies can be extremely helpful. So Medicare has a rebate for up to 10 sessions in a calendar year. Again, it's up to the individual provider as to their exact fee. So I always tell people to check uh, with the provider and make sure that they uh, want to go with that person. That's true. Now, so the question is, can chronic care plan and mental care plan be combined? 
They, they can't. I get asked that a lot, but they cannot be combined. So they're two separate plans. One is the chronic disease care plan, which is five sessions for allied health care. And one is your mental health plan for 10 sessions with a psychologist. So they can't be combined. And it's it's worth just shopping around as I, I sometimes one of my pet peeves is I like to give patients the costs of things and give them different options locally because they're the ones that are going to be going to these providers. But I sometimes find that people don't actually ask their GP for advice or don't ask about alternative providers and places. So I've he- heard some stories of people accepting a referral to see a psychologist just on a plan and they go away to make their appointment and then when they call up to make their appointment it's $210 and they they think oh well I can't afford that so they they promptly don't make an appointment and then they don't get access to the help that they need so I recognize and understand that times are tough we're in a really difficult economic climate lots of Aussies are having to make tough financial decisions and and financial adjustments we're having to tighten up sometimes so I suggest you have an open honest discussion with your GP and feel free to ask them for different providers or shop around yourself say you know Dr so-and-so I'm struggling a little bit or I don't know if I can afford to pay that and let's look at some alternatives. I know from our local area in Rockingham, there's a significant variation in costs for services, uh, but we've got really good access in Rockingham. We're very lucky to have reduced gap access to lots of services. So it's very helpful for people to make an informed financial decision. So I hope that helps Jenny um, talk about mental health care plans and care plans. But just remember, especially for any kinds of plans, Holistic therapies are just as important when dealing with your chronic condition. And I often find they work best in conjunction. So don't forget, you know, not just talking therapies, but exercise. It releases all those good endorphins and and makes you feel a whole lot better. Healthy body is a a healthy healthy mind. mind. Exactly. My dad loves that saying. So Medicare helps with access, but it's probably not enough to rely on entirely. So chat to your GP about getting the most out of other things that you can do to manage your chronic condition. For the community, Inspire Radio. Hi guys, it's the Ask Dr. Sammy show. I'm Dr. Sammy and I've got my dad here with me, Professor Sammy. How are you? And uh, uh, we've been doing um, lots of questions and answers at the Ask Dr. Sammy show. So as usual, you guys write in or ask in with any of the questions, concerns, anything that seems a bit difficult or awkward, things that you're not really sure about. You don't need to look at it up online. Don't search Google. No, no, you don't want to do that. It's all doom and gloom if you do that. And you don't want to bug your friends and family because sometimes you're getting advice and it's not actually medical advice, so you're not really sure. Just ask Dr. Sammy. Ask Dr. Sammy, that's it. And we've got a a great question here, so let's kick it off, hey? Yes, uh, Pauline from Lido wants to know, what are the signs of diabetes? That's my problem as well. Wow, Pauline. So my dad is is a pre-diabetic, so he he needs to listen up closely when it comes to this question, Pauline. So it's a good one. It diabetes. Diabetes is one of the biggest health challenges facing our health system. Um, One person every five minutes develops diabetes in Australia. That's huge. One person every five minutes. But what's concerning is that most people have undiagnosed or silent type 2 diabetes. What? Silent? What is silent diabetes? You would think you would know that you have diabetes. So I have lots of people that say, no, no, Christabel, I know that I don't have diabetes. But most people with diabetes don't have any symptoms at all, especially type 
2 diabetes, which is the most common one. So we often hear that when you've got diabetes, you might feel really thirsty, you might go to the toilet more often, feel hungry, dizzy, tired. But the truth is, most people don't get symptoms until their sugar levels are really, really high and they're starting to have complications develop with their kidneys and their eyes. So actually, it's often diagnosed as part of a routine blood test, which is why if you uh, know me, you'll know I encourage all people to have a regular contact with a GP so that they can start to have diabetes assessments done and bloods to make sure that we can catch things early. Uh, one of the saddest things is when I do work medicals for employment and you, you have to do some bloods as part of that. And that's when we diagnose diabetes because this is in people that are just about to start their job or they're needing to continue their job. And all of a sudden we've worked out that they've got diabetes and that can sometimes affect their employment. So it's much better to pick things up early. Oh, so what causes diabetes? Well, it can run in some families where you might have a genetic predisposition to developing it. Some cultures are more prone to it. Uh, so, for example, South Asians are, are known to be have a higher chance of of diabetes. So as my dad says, he's got the good looking genes, but not oh, the right. good diabetic genes. Um, but we can't change our genes. So we we can't actually do much about those. Those are called non-modifiable risk factors. We can't really do anything about our genes as much as we want to. But what we can change is the modifiable risk factors. So that's the things we can be in control of. So our blood pressure, our weight, how much physical activity we do, the diet that we have, those sorts of things. So how can I reduce my risk of getting diabetes? So what I often say is that when we do an annual check of people's health and look at their risk factors, we can start to pick up an upward, upward trend of their sugars so that we can tackle things earlier. So too often diabetes causes complications and it's much harder to treat when people haven't been engaged with their GP and we haven't picked things up. So the age group that can be difficult to tackle is 40 to 65-year-olds because they think they're healthy and they don't come to the GP unless they're very, very unwell. And that can be a sign that things have progressed. So I'm a fan, you will have heard this before, prevention is better than cure. So the message is to your loved ones and partners and children is to check in with your GP. Look at making sure your blood pressure is good, your physical activity is good, your weight's good, your diet's good, because those are all things that will reduce your risk of getting diabetes. And as things start to creep up, that's when your GP might say, Martin, you know, Professor Sammy, you got to hit the treadmill a little bit so that we can reduce your risk of diabetes. And that's when you got to Go time. you got to do it. <laughs> if I have diabetes, can I be cured? So there is currently no cure for diabetes, but the condition can be really well managed and people can live a healthy, normal life managing their diabetes. But the main thing that is effective is lifestyle changes. The drug companies aren't going to love me here, everyone, um, because we have lots of different types of medication that are very effective at reducing your sugars, and we use them a lot. However, the main way we treat things, it starts with you. It's no drug company. It's just you. 
Exercise. Exercise is a part of it. That's it. <laughs> Lifestyle changes dramatically reduces your sugar levels. And when made early enough, so as that blood test sugar starts to creep up, that may be the only thing that you need to do to manage your diabetes. So I have some patients who have diabetes. We caught it early. They've made some lifestyle changes and that's it. They don't do anything else. They don't take medication. But in some cases, we also need medication as well. And that's just to get better control. The main thing is it all starts with you. You have to see the doctor, get an annual risk assessment, tackle the areas in our life that could be improved. I've said it before, um, we spend a lot of time investing in our jobs, finances, children, education, but we can't forget or neglect our most important asset and that's our health. So just like we spend time investing in our families, that extra hour we think we don't have to meal prep instead of buying a takeaway, it will pay off when we stay healthy. We have to prioritize our health. So I know myself, I'm in a fast paced lifestyle and sometimes I don't want to make those lifestyle choices, but they're free or often cheaper than taking medication. So the key is to make early changes. So the message is simple. See your GP regularly and make sure your health is on track and prioritize yourself. Exactly. That's it. Um, I have two great websites that people might want to check out. One is the Heart Foundation Australia website and also the Diabetes Australia website. They have lots of healthy recipes and meal ideas, really brilliant meal ideas that are healthy and that we can incorporate in our lifestyle. And that all helps us with reducing diabetes risk. So check that out, guys. For the community, Inspire Radio. And we've got another question here at the Ask Dr. Sammy show with Inspire Radio. And this is from Claire from Port Kennedy. Wants to know what causes night tremors or terrors? Terrors, night terrors. That's it. So, uh, Dad, I don't think I had night terrors as a child, so I don't think my dad actually knows very much about this. A night terror is different to a nightmare. So that's what people oh. get confused about. A night terror is when your child gets very agitated in a deep state of sleep. And it's actually a normal part of development and can occur in ha healthy, happy children. During a terror, a child might look like they're really panicked or distressed. They might be crying or running around, but they're actually asleep. So when you try and respond to them or comfort them, they won't they won't respond to you. They may be sweaty or panicked, their eyes open, um, and it can occur very suddenly in last 10 to 15 minutes or so. Seems very, very, very scary, but night terrors don't hurt your child. So does, do the children remember them in the morning? No, often with night terrors, they don't. So that's why it's different to a nightmare. With a nightmare, your children will often wake up distressed after them, and they'll be able to tell you a little bit about it. In a night terror, children don't remember them and they'll sleep through and not know anything about it in the morning. So what causes them? So they often run in families. So if you check in some people's families where there's a history of night terrors or particularly sleepwalking, that will make it a little bit more co uh, common. It can also be linked to not having enough good quality sleep or occasionally if children are worried about something. So if they're sleeping in a new bed or environment, and sometimes children might have them more if they're unwell with a fever or they've got a cold. But don't worry, night terrors are completely normal for children between the age of 2 and 12. 
Most children grow out of them and they're not a sign of anything being wrong. There's not any long-term effects. I know parents are sometimes worried about things like epilepsy. There's just no link to any of that. Very occasionally, they can be caused by an ear, nose and throat problem. So especially if your child is snoring or appears to not sleep properly through the night, it's best to see your GP and just get them checked because if that's the cause, that'll need to get treated before the night terrors will get any better. So what do you do? So very important, if your child is having a night terror, don't wake them up. There's no point because they won't remember it. And if you try and console them, it will just make the night terror go on for longer for them. So the key is try and resist the urge to touch them. Unless they're about to hurt themselves, you're just going to do more harm. If your child's out of bed, wait for them to stop thrashing around and then get them back to bed and settle them to sleep. And obviously, if it's happened frequently, just check the the bedroom for any hazards. You don't want them to trip over toys and things like that. Remember the importance of a bedtime routine because they're often a little bit more common if you're not getting enough sleep. And if it's happening a couple of times, try and track where and when your child sleeps so that you can take that to the GP and just see if there's a link. We might be able to suggest some tips to avoid them. Uh, Parents often ask me, Claire, about medication for night terrors. It's not recommended to give them medication to help them sleep better. We just ask you instead to look at the bedtime routines and make sure they're getting good sleep habits. So that's the main thing about night terrors. So they're different to nightmares. And hopefully we've given you some tips and tricks for managing them in children. Thanks a lot for that great question, Claire. For the community, Inspire Radio.